Hill. Welcome to uh, Tacoma Rainiers Tuesday, our uh, our new podcast, right? I would love that. I mean, I've, it's gonna be it's gonna be pretty much the same thing as uh, Mariner Mondays. Yeah, honestly, I uh, I think it'd be it'd be more preferential to uh, to talk about the Tacoma Rainiers this year than the actual Seattle Mariners. Uh, but we're back. Pitchers and catchers report on Wednesday. It's exciting times, man. Pitchers and catchers is always like. This little ting in your head that you get. It's like, all right, baseball. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's, uh, the first the first like sunny day in Seattle right now, and you get that smell, and you and you just it it just reminds you of spring. And then with the pitchers and catchers, it's an exciting time. I think pitchers and catchers reporting is like nothing. Nothing happens. Like they just kind of do their thing and they stand around there. But it's just more of a symbolic. symbolic thing more than anything to like signify the return of, of our favorite game do you think it's like it's like reporting for like the first day of a, of a business conference when there's just a bunch of name tags on a table and like oh, especially especially with mariners and yeah. the turnover that we've had <laughs> i would be surprised if everyone even goes in there knowing each other who they are yeah i just imagine like somebody with a clipboard or an ipad be like oh you're all set and uh, <laughs> give them their you're, key card just, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I couldn't imagine that. I mean, especially I think the Mariners have what seventy guys in camp this year, which is actually one of the lowest they've had. But of those seventy, only twenty five are going to make the team. So, a lot of these guys are going to more more than half of the guys are going to be you know looking for a uh, new team. Yeah, let's uh, let's let's get into this. We have basically the same agenda that we had last year, um, and we'll walk you through that as as we go. But with a little little pivots to save us some time. Uh, and do some some quality over quantity in, in our in our talks week to week. Uh, but the first segment here is three up, three down. We'll talk about three different uh, major parts of of whatever's going on with the the Mariners at this point uh, in the season. The first one here is the lack of explosion over the off season. Uh, we've been spoiled or treated or uh, subjected to whichever you'd like to to mm-hmm. use here for for the last couple off seasons of very chaotic winters, uh, full of transactions, both big and small. Uh, this was uh, pretty light in that regard. The biggest trade, I think, that, that was made by the Mariners this year was trading catcher Omar Narvaez for Adam Hill, who's a right-handed pitcher, uh, 23-year-old out of uh, from the Milwaukee Brewers. And a, as I know that you'd be stoked about this, uh, a competitive balance pick in between uh, yeah. round two and round three. Yeah, I, I honestly, that competitive balance pick was probably, I think if you were to ask people who were in the know, which, you know, I'm not, but I'm just reading the tea leaves here. That's probably the the more valuable of the two assets they're getting back from uh, from the Narvaez deal. And not necessarily just because, I mean, I think we've talked about this in the past, but just as a refresher, the baseball draft is very unlike the NBA draft or the NFL draft because there is, um, there's money considerations that you have to make and every team gets a, a certain amount of a, of, a, of a pool to work from to sign their players. So it'd be great to say, oh, well, let's go ahead and sign this uh, kid out of high school in the second round who projects to be, you know, a superstar. But then it comes down to the kid having more leverage against you because, you know, unless you can offer him X amount of dollars, he'd rather just go to play uh, baseball in, in college and then, you know, you're going to be unable to sign him. So what this what this bonus pool uh, or what this competitive balance um pick does not only gives them i think it's going to be like the 63rd 64th pick in the draft but it also adds a couple million dollars 
to their overall pool, and that might be enough to get a kid who was committed to, let's say, UCLA or Texas Tech or uh, you know TCU or one of those big uh, powerhouse programs. It might be enough to say, well, that deal's a little too sweet. Let's let's skip college and let's go right to the right to the pros. Yeah, that's huge uh, to to be a little bit more flexible. And obviously, the I don't know the two million dollars that you get for the competitive balance pick there doesn't have to be used on the guy that you actually are using or selecting with that competitive balance pick. Right, so that money helps you uh, helps your overall draft. A uh, very com- a very common strategy that I think Depoto's done a lot, and I know a lot of other uh, general managers do, is if they're going to go ahead and sign a a high profile high school kid in like let's say the second round, they'll go way above slot. You know, above slot meaning they'll pay him more than what the specified um, what the specified uh, bonus would be. You know, let's say recommended for that spot, and then in the third, fourth, fifth, and sixth rounds, they'll draft college seniors who don't have as much leverage, and they'll pay them way under slot because those college seniors really have nowhere to go. They can't say, "Well, I'm going to either return for my final year of college, or I'm going to go to college." Mm-hmm. So they kind of have to take what's given to them. Not exactly, but I think. The, you understand the yeah. gist of it. Yeah, and I think it'll be interesting as, as the Mariners continue to, I mean, hopefully they're, they're in a position where they, they consider their farm system severely bolstered from what, where it was just, just a year ago, really, um, where the guys that they're picking aren't necessarily, they're not, they're not thinking that they have to be a part of the same wave of guys that's coming in, um, the, the Rodriguez's, the Kellenix, that, that wave. Uh, this is something where you're just you're just working on continuously building that farm system right. over and over and over to always be strong and, and be able to push the chips in uh, on a big trade target if need be. You just a perfect example is just what happened today. Yep. I mean, I guess it got finalized today. The Dodgers are one of the best teams on the MLB level, but because of prudent drafting and international free agent scouting and all of that stuff, they have a really robust farm system to be able to either you know continue to. Uh, either let's say get under the luxury tax by shipping out older expensive players and supplementing that with younger cheaper players or in a year like now where Andrew Friedman the general manager of the Dodgers has decided you know what this is our year to go for it let's not worry about the luxury tax then you have the ammunition to go and get somebody like a Mookie Betts and you wonder why Andrew Friedman left Tampa Bay um yeah amazing and the same thing he's working with his old associate uh Bloom who was also at Tampa Bay they've I mean, you know, I can understand what the appeal is for for teams to go out and get guys from that front office because they're working basically with like a ball and chain around their ankle, uh, trying to trying to put a competitive team on the field every year, and they, and they've been doing a fantastic job. Yeah, the Rays are a model model organization in that regard, at least. Um, mm-hmm. Other other things that the Mariners did, just a few moves around the edges, signed a guy named Patrick Wisdom, uh, Kendall Graveman, who figures to be a part of the Mariners, at least opening opening day starting rotation. Uh, a few other small signings and acquisitions, but I think the big ones worth talking about are the uh, extensions given to Evan White and Marco Gonzalez. Evan White um, it just signed to a six-year, $24 million contract. Evan White has not played above uh, double A ball, uh, which mm-hmm. is pretty wild. So he'll be locked up through his age 30 season. Uh, and then Marco Gonzalez, obviously um, the richest uh, former podcast guest on, on uh, in the Mariner history, um, hit four year, $30 million contract through his age 32 season. Um, so trying to get these guys extended and, and locked in um, for uh, what should be uh, greener pastures in the next few years. But I think the Evan White one is the most interesting of, of these signings. Mm-hmm. This could 
this is a I mean from a from a fan's perspective, from a Mariners perspective, this is an outstanding contract. From Evan White's perspective, not so sure about this one. How do you feel? From his perspective, I I, I like what what he was able to do. If I'm if I'm let me talk from the perspective of as if I was Evan White right now. So can you you've please be use looking. a Kentucky accent just to, to be <laughs> accurate? But you've got to be looking at the next six years of your life, right? Where for at least the first four of them, because if he hadn't signed this contract, I don't believe the front office's um, stance that he would have been in the majors anyway. I believe that they would have manipulated service time. So let's really call it seven years. For the next seven years of his life, three of those being uh, years where he's making the league minimum $500,000 a year. And then the fourth year, he's only going to be making, what, 25% of what he would be making on the open market. And then fifth year, he'd only be making 50%. And then in the final year, he'd be making pretty close to what his true market value would be. He's getting that security locked up right now. And the Mariners, I, I like the deal for the Mariners, but there is a substantial risk on the Mariners end too because a lot of times, no matter how good a prospect is, we see them not work out for whatever reason. Um, and in most cases, without any sort of contract tethering the, the team to the, to the player, you can really just get rid of that player. No harm, no foul. You can wash your hands. The Mariners are, um, you know, committing a substantial amount of payroll to a guy they haven't even seen above double A. So it's not exactly risk-free for the Mariners either. Yeah. Evan White gets a little bit of security and the Mariners maybe are going to be able to get a, a guy for longer for cheaper. So it, it really is a balancing act. Evan White's giving a up a little bit of his upside, uh, contract-wise, dollars-wise, for a little more security right now, which is a trade-off I think you could easily defend as completely fair. Yeah, I think the the relatively low overall cost of this is is certainly Mariner friendly in that you know it's it's not an, a huge risk if this goes completely south, and I think it's also a testament to their evaluation of Evan White's floor. Uh, that mm-hmm. if you run a hundred different scenarios of Evan White's career, uh, that at least 60 of them are probably, you know, an above, above average to average, um, major league first baseman, uh, with great defense. So a guy that, um, even if, even if the bat never really shows up in, in the way that you'd hope it to, where he's, he's, you know, an all-star caliber first baseman offensively, uh, that that's something that you could still just pin in as your starting first baseman for, for the foreseeable future, which is, um, a nice piece to have, but obviously that, as you said, means that it, the show is starting right now for Evan White, and he will be your first baseman um, at the major league level right away. Exactly, and there's a couple other considerations that I just want to point out. Number one, there obviously has to be internal evaluations about who he is as a person. I don't, I don't really like to get into like evaluating people, but when you put you know thirty million dollars in front of a guy who's, you know, 23, 24 years old, a little bit of that incentive to work hard for that contract might, you know, it might not be as incentivized to go out and really do the things he needs to do to be successful because he knows he's got a lot locked up. But apparently the front office um, believes in him and in his character. And I think they believe in his bat a lot too. Uh, the If you hear a lot of talk about Evan White's exit velocity, exit velocities, which is just basically how hard he hits the ball, He's been in the top five, top 10% of the minor leagues throughout his career. The only issue has been trying to get him to elevate the ball and turning some of those hard hit line drives into hard hit home runs. But I think they believe that that's something that they can adjust. Yeah, you heard uh, Jerry DePoto talk about Evan White specifically in, at uh, the 
the pre-spring luncheon. Uh, pre-spring is a great way of, in Seattle terms, just saying uh, bleak, gray, darkness uh, <laughs> is the, the name of pre-spring. Um, but, uh, but yeah, him talking about Evan White, exit velocity around 92, 93 miles an hour um, on average for him last year. Um, you can't really find exit velocity numbers for minor league prospects in the same way that you can find major league. Right. So that is so obviously, you're going to have to take their word for that. Exactly. That's an internal evaluation that, that they're using. And, and for all intents and purposes, they could be blowing smoke. They don't really have any incentive to do that. Um, but, uh, but you can tell that their confidence in Evan White, the person, the player, um, is quite high. He's a guy that they brought up at the, at, to, to just hang out with the major league team, essentially, uh, with Logan Gilbert. Was it Cal Raleigh was the third guy too at the end of the yep, last year? Cal Raleigh. Yeah. As, uh, you know, just the, the battery and the first baseman, I think that, that, uh, they really believe in going forward. Um, which is, which is good. I mean, it's, it's, it's nice to have the merging of the, the step back and the pieces that were kind of, you know, just abstract and now they're they're fully a part of the major league mm-hmm. team really quickly i just want to mention one name uh a guy by the name of jonathan singleton do you know who that is i do not and that is kind of the risk here the astros kind of invented this type of contract to lock guys up and avoid arbitration and buy out a few years of of uh of of free agency before the player even hits the majors and the first ever contract was given to this guy named Jonathan Singleton. And now you don't even know where this guy is. That's that's a loss. That that would have been something where the Astros wish they could have taken that one back. So I just want to make sure that people understand that this isn't something that's totally just like, why would Evan White ever sign this deal? There is risk on both sides to this deal. But there's also a lot of benefit to both sides of this deal. Yeah. John Singleton, as I'm looking it up, is a guy that had uh, a little... A little uh, character and and um, mm-hmm. legal issues as well that might have and there's co- the other that. concern with giving such a young kid you know so much money yeah uh and something similar was done obviously with the braves um it felt a little bit more criminal just because of the uh the international aspect of it with their their contracts given to ozzy Albies and, and mm-hmm. acuna um mm-hmm. two very young guys who will be great players for the years to come getting them on the cheap um but that's that's a conversation for a different podcast quick any uh, quick thoughts on the marco contract yeah, um, I don't think this precludes the Mariners from trading Marco. I know there's been a lot of talk about how he's a fa- foundational piece, and that's why they gave him this contract. And I think that all sounds good in press clippings. But this deal, in fact, makes his contract a little bit more trade-friendly, which is great because it provides the Mariners flexibility, let's say, at the end of this year and everything goes horribly wrong and they have to readjust their time frame say hey we're not competing in 2021 which by the way we'll get into how you know (laughs) realistic we think 2021 is later on but let's say the Mariners reassess and they say we're not going to be competing by 2021 I still think there's ample opportunity to trade that contract for uh, a significant uh, package in return Sounds about right. Uh, before we move on to the second out here, I wanted to, to just bring up a prevailing theme, and this will color the rest of, of the podcast, but uh, just the severe, severe lack of talent on, on this year's Major League roster with the, with the Mariners. We talked about it briefly at the beginning here, but uh, not that fantasy rankings are a great way of, of showing that, but obviously that's that's a barometer for... Uh, projected statistical success. Uh, the the first player in ESPN's top 300 in fantasy rankings is Malik Smith at number 137 overall. Um, so not a great sign that the the player most you know contributing to box score stats essentially um, is Malik Smith and no that, not at all that low. So 
Uh, I wonder how much um, evaluation those fantasy um, rankings give to younger players. How much they think a player could improve on last year's performance or a guy could be prone to break out this year. Because that could also color a little bit of, of, of how we see the talent develop this year. For sure, yeah. Evan White is on the top 300 as a guy that, that you know, you're probably, if you're a fantasy pundit, is just saying draft him, hang on to him, and hope that mm-hmm. he starts to pop and be viable by, you know, August, September of this year. Uh, but uh, we'll talk about fantasy in a, a more colorful way at the end of the podcast. Uh, let's talk about our second out here, the biggest positional players in, in spring, biggest positional player storylines heading into spring training. Uh, this is, of course, Phil, uh, best shape of my life season, mm-hmm. um, hot Kyle season. I am season. not in the best shape of my life right now, <laughs> but I'm going to get there very soon. Your spring cre- spring body has to be coming out. You're cresting? Is that, that yeah. What, yeah. I, what do they call that? Uh, um, bulking and, and what's the other one? Cutting. Uh, the opposite of bulking? Cutting. cutting yeah, yeah. I, I'm in cut phase right now. Okay, yeah. You've been in cut phase perpetually <laughs> basically <laughs> since the, the first I year would, I knew Well, you. I was in bulk phase for the first 20 years of my life, so yeah. I figured it's time to cut for exactly. now the next 20. Um, but, uh, sh- this is where you get a lot of, of speculation about players and, you know, uh, hype is, is at, at its highest and it's small sample sizes. Spring training can color a lot. Uh, but let's start with the outfield here. Mitch Haniger has a, a core injury related to, you know, maybe related to, um, the testicular injury from last yeah, year. I think they, I think that's not maybe, I think it definitely is related to the testicular injury. Um, yeah. because he had that sports hernia develop after the surgery. And then that fed into the core thing. What a rough year for, for yeah. buddy Mitch. Um, hopefully Mitch Palooza can resume at some point soon this, this season. He'll probably be out, I would guess, until around May uh, at the mm-hmm. earliest this season. So that leaves basically four outfield spots, uh, four guys for three outfield spots. I think the easiest one to pencil in uh, is the aforementioned Malik Smith. Uh, sure. Had a severe regression last season from his Tampa Bay numbers. Um, his WRC Plus was down about 40 points from where it was uh, the year before in Tampa. Uh, my question to you, did did Malik Smith get babbipped a little bit last year? His his, uh, bat, his batting average in falls in play went from 366 to 302 last year. So I, I was thinking about this, and I really – it's not often I get to sound smart, so I'm going to do it. I remember distinctly when Malik Smith was coming over from the Rays in that trade we were discussing, the Mike Zanino trade. We looked at his babbip, and we said – that looks artificially high. 366 looks way too high. Even for a guy, generally speaking, guys who are very fast run higher babbits because they're going to be able to beat out grounders in the infield and stuff like that at a higher clip than other guys. But I remember we talked, and I, I wish we could pull up the, the um, soundbite, but we, we both said that looks like a guy who might be bitten by the regression bug a little bit. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, he was bitten by the regression bug, but not a little bit. He was bitten a lot. And I think that that's going to come. I think the true level of Malik Smith lies somewhere in between what we saw in that borderline all-star campaign in uh, Tampa and what he was last year. So the reality is he, he got babbipped in a positive way in 2018. Uh, and mm-hmm. then last year was not the anomaly, but a little bit closer to uh, to the average. Yeah, that's that's probably true and a good, good uh, philosophy uh, generally, I think Malik Smith improved defensively, especially from the beginning of last season to the oh, end yeah. of last season, um, where he was seemingly just tossing home run balls over over center field. Uh, if you look at his outs above average, uh, which is the new Statcast metric that yep. um, 
analyzes basically based on their sprint speed and their jumps and all of these things that we don't have access to at home. He was a he was a borderline elite defender, which is where almost all of his value came from last year because he didn't have any at the plate. Yeah, yeah. So that that was promising, and and he figures to be you know a, a stopgap guy and uh, high energy and can you know make plays out center that um, that are exciting and just a. a a, one of the one of the more dependable pieces in, in this year's lineup. I think he's he's squarely your guy in center field, uh, and then the corner outfield spots. You've got Jake Fraley, Kyle Lewis, and, and Braden Bishop um, mm-hmm. fighting for those conceivably. Uh, give us a quick reassurance about Jake Fraley, a guy you were obviously very high on, but whose uh, stint in the major leagues last year did not go very well. I I wish I could give you reassurance, but I what I saw with my own eyes last year. And I, I went to two games when they brought up all these um, young kids uh, because I was excited. I thought, like, this is, you know, the way for the future. And you granted, idiot. he was dealing with personal personal issues and he had wrist issues. But, God, he just did not look like he was anywhere near prepared to face the level of pitching that he was facing. Uh, his WRC Plus was in the negatives when he was up in the majors. And his AAA numbers weren't that great. I mean, obviously, he set AA on fire, which was huge and very important. But I think he needs a little more time to simmer down in AAA and really see what we can expect from him. He's a plus defender in the outfield, and that's not going to change. But I don't think his his plate discipline numbers and his power numbers specifically are where they need to be right now. So not necessarily a good thing if he's your starting right fielder uh, from day one. No, I couldn't... I, I could I could see a scenario where him and Bishop uh, kind of split the 50-50 until Hanniger gets back, and then who, whichever one of those two emerges as a more viable long-term solution slots in as your fourth outfielder. Or put Malik Smith in right field to, to hang out there and, and D Gordon back in center. Um, something... I would not like that. <laughs> I, I really don't know why, speaking of D Gordon, I really don't know why he's still on the team. Uh, if it's really just a hesitancy to eat the $13 million that he is owed, I, I just don't understand that. They're not going to get a piece back for him at the deadline. They're not going to make D. Gordon anything that he they don't already know about him. So what's the point of keeping him on the roster when all they've said for the last six months is it's time to let the young guys play? You know who else doesn't know why D. Gordon's on the team? Who's that? D. Gordon. Um, <laughs> yeah, he's got to be as surprised as anybody. Yeah, he's he's got to be a little frustrated, and it's it, it truly is a bind with him because you, you know putting him in at any regular position um, blocks a young player from from getting um, actual time. Uh, but at the same time, he is probably better than that player he's blocking. Um, but every conceivable position that they could put him at center field, second base, even shortstop, you've got a guy there that you need to see yep, and yep. you need to get plate appearances to. So I don't understand why he's on the team. Yeah. I, it's going to be weird when he just basically becomes Charles Gibson and is just a mm-hmm. late, late inning pinch runner. Um, and that's the down thing six to two. He, there's a market for a guy like D Gordon in the national league, late inning pinch runner, great defense. That, yeah. There's a market for it, but they're just so unwilling. I don't know. I don't know. That one's not sat right with me. So Jake Freely talked about, we'll talk about Kyle Lewis a little bit later. The The, the verdict on him obviously was um, a really fun run at the end of last season. Six home runs in his first 10 games. Mm-hmm. Um, hit the ball with above average uh, speed, exit velocity um, and contact numbers. But, um, you know, just the uh, the strike zone control is really uh, the verdict with him. So, or what it will come down to with him. So we'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, Braden Bishop probably makes the club. 
Yeah, I would if I had to put my life on it right now, I'd say he would. Yeah, him and Fraley will both probably be the two guys out of camp that make the team with uh, Hanniger starting the season on the injured list. So I think that there's a less than 2% chance that either Julio Rodriguez or Jared Kelenic uh, make the major league roster. Um, but I this morning I was talking myself into it really um, that I was like, they're, they're not that young, those two guys, that them freaking on – uh, at least at some point this season, if not at the beginning, would be would be insane. I mean, Jared Kelenic right now is as old as Juan Soto was basically to the day, if we're talking about from the date of recording this podcast. But one, yeah, Soto Soto is an exception there. For I sure. I want to point that one out. For sure. But I mean, high, high level prospects breaking in mm-hmm. is, is, you know, not impossible. Uh, and then Julio Rodriguez will be as old as Juan Soto was when he broke in in July. Um, so, I mean, the, the timeline isn't completely astronomical for either of those guys to, to play at some point. Is there any chance you see that either of these guys start on the major league club? Zero. I would, I would think, I would think zero. Granted, there's a chance that anything happens. Everyone gets hurt or these guys just are way more advanced than what I would think. But it's again, the same thing with the service time consideration. Do you really want to bring up Jared Kelnick or Julio Rodriguez right now? waste a year of service time for a guy who's not ready to be there just to kind of placate some of the more restless fans. If you're doing that, I don't think you deserve to be a general manager. I I really just don't see it being any way feasible. And I love both those guys, and I think they're both going to be great. But right now is not the time to have them there. Yeah, we heard DePoto speak at the the luncheon basically saying that no matter what the – woes of this team are uh in april and may and i will say the way he was speaking was was almost expecting those woes of starting out out of the gates you know eight and 22 something like that that that, that bringing these guys up just to just to satisfy fans or to make the the major league club a little bit more exciting uh would just be the wrong move so i i Absolutely. don't think we'll see them um i would almost expect to not see them all season but i don't know uh things things can change uh, to the infield, what are some realistic expectations for, for J.P. Crawford this year? Uh, Shed Long and Evan White, just picking those three guys as the, the, the young guys will obviously end up talking throughout the season about uh, the rest of the infield. But those, those three, starting with J.P. Crawford. Do you want to hear the bad news about Crawford first or the good news? <laughs> uh, that the hitter he was at the end of last season is probably the hitter he's always going to be. I don't think that's necessarily true, but yeah, I, I think it, I think it's closer right. to what he's going to be than what he was in June. Let me guess. The, Ju- let me June, guess. He was, you know. Let me guess. Go the ahead. bad news then is that he's actually not that good defensively. No, I think he's really good defensively. Okay, uh, then I yeah, ruin me. The bad news is, as far as exit velocities go, how hard he hits the ball, he ranks in the bottom ten yes. percent of all major league hitters. His hard hit percentage, his barrel percentage, his ex woba, which is. We've talked about that on the podcast, but just for a refresher, ex-WOBA is basically your expected on-base percentage. Like, when you hit the ball, how often is that going to result in you getting on base? Uh, he's in the bottom 10% of that. He's he's not great in terms of hitting the ball with authority, but where he is great is he's got two major things working for him. His uh, career... Um, his career play discipline numbers are really, really nice. He took a tick up to 11% base on ball percentage uh, last year and a K percentage around 23%. So if he can keep those in line and couple that with the fact that he's a shortstop who doesn't necessarily need to hit super well, you're 
projecting out probably a two and a half win player, which again, it's not an amazing player, but it's, it's a good piece on a playoff team. So help me understand outs above average a little bit um, in that we talked about Malik Smith as a guy who had a, you know, positive outs of average differential. And, and, you know, visibly, if you watch Malik Smith is by no means a, a perfect fielder. Uh, but then JP Crawford, who watching him, the, the defensive highlights are outstanding and his ability to, to get to balls and make throws is, is certainly plus uh, based on the eye test. But you look at his infield out, outs average from last year and he's right at zero um, for, so how does how does that work? Just kind of a modified let's get smarter segment here uh, to explain uh, the composition of, of that number. So first thing that needs to be addressed is that outs above average is a counting metric. It's not a um, rate metric, meaning the more time you have on the field, the higher or lower you're going to go. It's kind of like hits or RBIs or something like that, where it it also is very dependent on the amount of times you have the ball hit to you. Um, you can't make any positive or negative gains in OAA outs above average without plays coming your way. I think that's fairly obvious, but it, it deserves to be stated because he, it's not a rate metric where you can project out. It's a simply this, this is exactly what happened metric. He obviously only played about half the season between the late call up and the injuries. So we're going to need to see a little bit more from him there. And the other part of that is it looks like from the outs above average, they actually compartmentalize them into how you're going on the ball. Is the ball going backwards? Are you coming in on the ball? Are you having to go to your left? Are you having to go to your right? Uh, It looks like he's positive in all the categories, except he is a little bit worse going up the middle than what you would expect. Am I, do you have that pulled up? I believe I'm, I'm remembering that correctly. Yes. Yeah. Uh, he's, he's, Going into the ball, so playing a ball that's that's coming directly at him, and he's moving forward towards it. Four four outs above average, uh, moving towards third base, so moving to his right, negative two, uh, and then right at zero for for every other type of mo- every directional movement uh, for Crawford. Which, by the way, we've talked about this before offline, but uh, Statcast and Baseball Savant are freaking unbelievable. Uh, unbelievable, and they're free. I yeah, can't believe it. it's it's insane. Um, we'll talk about some of the other uses for, uses for it later. Uh, but yeah, I mean, think, looking here uh, at a guy like Andrew Flynn Simmons, who is uh, best um, best in uh, in the league among shortstops uh, for infield or from outs above average. As I'm looking here, I can't find it, of course. Um, but is obviously a guy who played the whole season um, and who has much more opportunities to field, and therefore would have saved more outs than um, than a guy like Crawford, who only had 330. Uh, exactly, it, it it is an opportunity thing as well. Yes. Um, so, so Crawford, the, the verdict is essentially if we can see the exit velocity creep up um, a little bit closer to, you know, from where it was in the bottom 10 there, to, to closer to league average, um, keep the same level of defense, that would be a, a big win for him. So I think he projects out to be a above average shortstop, not a gold glove shortstop, but definitely above average. If he can just hit at an average rate for a shortstop, which is not a big ask, that's like a very small ask, like behind catcher. Shortstop is really the only other position where you can get away with a pretty below average bat and still be a, a valuable piece. So I don't think that, you know, his exit velocities and his ex woba and all those are a death sentence, but it would be nice to see those come up. Definitely. Uh, how about Shed Long, a guy who's, whose bat really came on at the end of last season, uh, went from a guy who was, you know, a marginal prospect uh, at, the, at this point last year uh, to seems like a, a foundational guy or at least someone that Ems would like to be foundational 
uh, at this point as as your start your starting second baseman going forward. I don't know what to make of Shedlong. What do you make of him? Uh, it's it's hard to tell the consistency of the injury. I mean. It, it, Getting a full read on him is 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 tough. I think the key for this for this year's season is can he hit stuff that's not a fastball? Because if you look at his splits, right. it just goes severely down if it, if it's not fastballs. Um, and he really uh, chowed down on fastballs last year for a lot of a lot of the production we did see. I'm just looking at uh, the, here's the problem with doing shed long with JP Crawford. We had not a huge sample size but I could look at some of his stats and I could say, these are probably representative of the player who he is. I'm looking at Shed Long and it's 662 pitches that he got in the major leagues. That's not an, that's not enough to decide who he is. So I'm looking at his, you know, exit velocity. That's like 10 Daniel Vogelback at, at, at bat. Oh, ex- exactly. <laughs> it's just not, it's just not enough. So I, I don't know if he's a great, defensive second baseman they had played around with trying to move him around the field which to me maybe tells me that he's not going to be a great defensive second baseman and they want to use him more in a utility type role but i i do believe in the bat just from my eyes and and on this one i'm going to defer to the eye test because there's just simply not enough information on him at the major league level to to really hone in on 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 who he's going to be um he wasn't uh Super heralded prospect. I think he cracked a couple top hundred lists, but just barely. Um, so it, but you know, again, that's not a that's not a determination either. That's not a death sentence if you number make a top hundred list. I think Mookie Betts uh, he topped out at like number seventy five. So again, these things can be wrong all the time. It's not. Uh, it's a. It's a something that helps you paint the picture, but it's not exactly indicative of exactly what's going to happen. So I really don't. Uh, that's a lot of words to say. I don't know what to make of Shedlong. So, so you would be happy if Shedlong's 2020 uh, included what? I want to see him have a walk rate above 8%. I want to see average defensive second baseman. Because if he's an average defensive second baseman, I think he hits the ball hard enough. And if he walks at 8%, that's going to be a good piece. That's a three-win player. I, I believe in the bat enough. He swings with enough authority and he hits the ball high enough and with enough gusto that that's a good player. And again, but, second base is not a position where you need to necessarily mash. It's a little bit more of a necessity than shortstop or catcher. But again, it's on the defensive spectrum where, you know, first base is or DH is the guy who needs to hit the most. Second base is pretty far down the list. Let's move over to first base and the guy who uh, will be asked to hit the most, at least at some point, in in Evan White, who I'm affectionately calling E Dub uh, at the uh, for, for for now. We'll see how that goes. Um, but uh, I think f- from the Billings, I mean, he has been billed as basically. Uh, I mean, Matt Chapman is in a, a complete different stratosphere of defensive ability, but uh, somewhat close to that. I mean, JT Snow, um, Keith Hernandez came up um, as or Keith Hernandez as as the the comps defensively. I mean, I think we have to see that type of uh, flashes of that level of defense uh, because that seems to be the skill that you're absolutely banking on uh, with with Evan White there. And it seems to me, just anecdotally, I don't know, I don't have stats in front of me to back it up, but it seems that projecting defense is a little bit easier of a task than projecting how a guy's going to adjust offensively. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's a fair enough assertion? Yeah, I think guys, I mean, even looking at uh, at Tom Murphy last year, can can really work towards their swing and they're building out their offensive game, at least on the margins, to become, you know, 
slightly better players. Uh, but if you don't have it defensively, I, I, I can't remember um, a truly bad defensive player working themselves into to even passable. Um, no. You know, it's the, that you have to carry that by the time I think you're, you're 24 years old like Evan White is. And I think I the problem with first base defensive metrics is it doesn't account for it's not third base. Above, yeah. yeah at least outs above average uh it doesn't count for you know scoops and picks and all of that kind of thing and it just counts for your range which mm-hmm. for a first baseman that's only a portion of, of what you're doing right right um so i think the other part with with evan white is is Basically, seeing if if Depoto's claims about his exit velocity, obviously he's not going to be able to hit the ball as hard as he he was in the minor league or was reported to hit it in the minor leagues. Uh, but can we see uh, an exit velocity above you know eighty eight eighty nine miles per hour uh, at least to start off with him? I think uh, would be would be reasonable. Uh, so I was reading an article when he was in the Futures game. You know he played in the Futures game last year. Mm-hmm. He hit a ball. His max exit velo on a ball was one hundred and twelve miles an hour, Woof. which yeah, you can't fake that, right? It's like that's why a lot of people that knew the in vogue thing to do is not to look at average exit velocity to find out a guy's true power potential. It's to look at their max exit velocity because if they can hit the ball 112 miles an hour, that means it's in there. Mm-hmm. You know what I does that make sense? Yeah, exactly. There's something in there where you if you can find a way to do that consistently, then that's the, then you're going to be in the money. Whereas average exit velocity velocity simply comes down to how many times is this guy getting the barrel on the ball? Right, right. Yeah, that'd be great. I would love to see some 112, 112 miles an hour uh, hits coming off of Evan White's bat. Uh, but it should be fun with those guys. I, I, you know, it's 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 going to be a slow process, and I think that the the true test with with those three uh, will actually be at this point next season. What questions are we asking about them? Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I think between you and I, we're we're uh, we're modest in our expectations with these guys. So I mentioned this to you. Uh, before we started recording, but I think it's worth talking about on the live podcast. Uh, this year is going to be much unlike last year, whereas last year was the first kind of grueling year of the rebuild where you're just seeing a lot of stop gaps, where all of your core pieces have been traded away and you're getting guys into the minors, but you're not getting guys into the majors. This year, you're going to start seeing Evan White shed long for a full season J.P. Crawford for a full season, Kyle Lewis for a full season, uh, maybe Jake Fraley for half a season, Bishop for half a season. So at the end of this year, we're going to be able to decide, and I think it's going to be very, very clear whether we have confidence in what is going on with the Mariners. Last year, it's hard to tell because, you know, we don't get a lot of reliable reports coming out of the minor leagues, and we really kind of have to take the front office's word for it. This year, we're going to be able to see with our own eyes, are these guys um, – improving are they looking to be foundational pieces and if they're not 2021 throw that out the window you're looking at more like 2023 2024 at that point so it's this is a win loss this year is not going to matter that much but it in many ways is a make or break year for the mariners and a make or break year for the front office yeah definitely i mean a lot of the guys that we're not even talking about who are going to start on the major league level you know if you're looking at their baseball reference pages in, a, in two years and the the success that they had in the 2019 campaign is just a, a blip. And that was where they kind of topped out versus um, them continuously improving. Uh, okay. Talking about the Logan Gilberts, the Cal Raleigh's type goes, those types of guys. Um, it, it, it's important that at this level, we're seeing improvement from, from the young guys who are uh, the first wave of prospects. And then at the, at the next level uh, or at the, you know, the next wave that that same, same type of uh, progress think- is happening. Do you think that the front office did themselves a disservice by 
putting a date on the time that the rebuild was going to be over. Yeah, we'll talk about this at the end yeah. here. Because All right, let's talk about the, that later. But this... I, I just think that was a very <laughs> unforced error, not a smart thing to do. Yeah, I mean, it's it honestly comes down to to whether you are taking Jerry Depoto as saying uh, 2019 or 2020, 2021 as 2020 uh, hyphen 2020, 2021 or comment comma 2021 it's a a syntax thing yeah exactly so um that's where people are starting to get a little frustrated but uh we'll reserve that at the end uh i don't think there's as much to talk about with the pitchers this year we talked about marco um a little bit um obviously seeing him continue his success would be would be huge um the fact that he's your best pitcher best starting pitcher at least to start the season uh is uh you know it's it's something um the other guys if you had to put odds on it do you think Marco ends the year as the best pitcher in the rotation? I do just because I don't, I don't know who could supplant him. And I, and I guess it depends on what you mean by best. Like if you look at who had the best season, it's, it's probably gonna be Marco, but, but um, who has, let's say, let's put it this way. Who, when you open up camp 2021, are you saying that guy's our ace? Do you still think it's Marco? Either that or it's because they have acquired someone else. Um, So you don't really believe too much in Sheffield or Dunn? I think think with Sheffield, I mean, we'll talk about him, I guess, right now. Um, I I didn't love what – I I can't remember if it was DePoto or or McKay talking about him that – you know, he's just always going to be a guy with a high whip. Essentially, like he's there's yeah. always going to be chaos with with Sheffield. His his uh, his out ability, like he's just a, a he's a good body. Um, he's durable. His fastball velocity is not great. His secondary pitches just got absolutely torched last year. Uh, you know, I actually didn't catch what they said about him. Do you mind filling me in on that? It was essentially like he's he's just a really good competitor, and he gets his his emotional volatility on the mound is kind of to his detriment that he gets too high and too low. Um, so if they can kind of steady him out, um, that'd be good. But but I think the word um, Depoto or McKay said about him was there's always going to be chaos. <laughs> essentially, that um, meaning he's going to let guys on. Yeah, exactly. Like every every inning is going to end with a guy on seconds um, somehow, some way. Um, which is, you know, there's guys like that who, who have made, who can succeed. Yeah. As long as you limit, as long as you limit the hard contact, you can succeed that way. Exactly. And you know, he's got to be able to strike guys out and, and, you know, not put extra guys on. Um, Mm -hmm. so stuff like that is just going to be a part of him, but he's got to really round into that. Um, so him, Yusei Kikuchi, I mean, last year was was just brutal. It was pretty bad. It was yeah. brutal. I mean, he couldn't strike guys out. He got hit very, very hard. Um, one of the great things about StatCast is you can just look at every single pitch that Kikuchi threw last year, and there's a video attached to all of them, Yeah, which is just, again, it's unbelievable. It's uh, an unbelievable system. The first three pitches I clicked on, I, sw- I, I could not make this up. The first three were all uh, videos of Kikuchi home runs given up. Um, which is, are you serious? Yeah, it was insane. Um, so I mean, that that's, just, that's pretty good. That's, that's super anecdotal and not actually indicative of, of his season, but, um, getting torched was, was, uh, because he did have some really high highs, uh, that game against who was it? Was it the Yankees where he went eight innings and I think gave up two hits, no runs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I if, mean, he did have, he showed flashes, but again, you're right. There's, there's the issue of him he got battered battered around a little bit last year. So I, again, that's another guy along with Shedlon. I have no idea what to make of him this year. And, and I'm going to be watching him very intently. Yeah. I don't think we saw ace potential at any point last year. And given his age, I mean, he's 28 years old. I, I don't think that if we didn't see it immediately last year, that 
uh, that's ever, that's ever going to be there. But hopefully he's not the the high five ERA guy that we saw last year. Right. Uh, can kind of tone down a little bit. I don't know. My expectations for this pitching staff, because you don't need like obviously you want to see development, but it's much more important to see development out of um, arms like uh, like Gerson Batista, Logan Gilbert, um, guys who are on that younger wave. Uh, can they get guys out at the major league level um, or and show promise? And, and I think Justice Sheffield and Justin Dunn are, are um, the, the the key cornerstones in that. You 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 know what to expect out of Marco Gonzalez. You hope you get it again. Uh, obviously, Kikuchi really can go nowhere but up. Uh, but Sheffield and Dunn, I think you have to see something out of those guys. They're kind of the uh, the Shedlong and JP Crawford of of the uh, of the staff. Right. And I think you're seeing a little bit of fatigue set in on both of those guys for whatever reason. Uh, well, for Sheffield, it's, it's a pretty apparent reason. Uh, he topped out in prospect rankings in the, in the low twenties, you know, he was heralded as a very elite prospect and now you're going to be hard pressed to see him on any sort of top 100 list. I think there's a lot of fatigue with him. I think last year rubbed a lot of the shine off of his prospect, uh, mantle. And I think with Justin Dunn, He's another year older now, and he still hasn't made the leap up. So there's there's questions that these guys, those two need, in specific, need to answer before we can really get a good feel for, for where we're going in terms of the pitching staff. Who leads the 2020 Seattle Mariners in saves? Probably uh, C.J. Edwards, I would guess. If I had to guess, I would say uh, the guy they just got from the Cubs. Um, just because he has a, he has a pedigree as a closer – uh, he did it in high-pressure scenarios. He was with the Cubs during their World Series run. I assume that that's going to be the guy that they're going to put in there at the start, and if all goes well, I'm. It's going to be a probably a closer by committee this year, similar to how it was last year. But I would assume he, as long as he's healthy, he's going to be the guy who leads the team in saves. Took me forever to realize that C.J. Edwards and Carl Edwards Jr. Jr. are the same person. Yeah. Uh, so apparently he goes by C.J. That's 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 the thing. Yeah. That makes it easy for I you. I didn't then. know that either. Do, do you think that that's enough to get your brother into the 2020 Mariners? I was going to get him a CJ jersey uh, <laughs> with Carl Edwards' number on it. His, his uh, what is it, the players only or whatever their, their, yeah, their fun jerseys are. Um, yeah, it's it's going to be a brutal year for for the pitching staff especially. But, um, you know, when, when when you see a guy like Sheffield and Dunn on the mound, um, got to tune in to see, see the development there. That's uh, the, the big least. thing, and that's the overarching thing, I think, with this whole podcast, is it's going to be a lot more interesting to tune in this year, where, because every time Sheffield or Dunn or steps on the mound, or Evan White takes a nap-bat, or Kyle Lewis takes a nap-bat, or you know Jake Fraley runs a ball down in the outfield, that means something going forward. That is something you can project forward, whereas last year looking at Tim Beckham boot a grounder, it doesn't really matter because it doesn't mean anything. Watching J.P. Crawford boot a grounder, you might get a little more worried. So I think this year is actually a little bit more high stakes than people are giving it credit for, regardless of whether the win-loss total is going to be what you want it to be. Uh, Pete boot a grounder might be a good uh, good baseball or fantasy <laughs> baseball team name at some point. Uh, let's, oh, I we're think, getting to that, aren't we? Yeah, it's very soon. Um, I think we might be the only people in, in – uh, this offseason podcast uh, realm who have talked about baseball to go 47 minutes of talking about baseball and not talk about the Houston Astros. So let's, uh, mm-hmm. let's break that right now. Uh, we're going to get a little smarter here and we're going to break down sign stealing. Um, okay. So in a little bit, I'll ask you to explain what the Astros were doing, you know, not at the super scientific level, but yeah. uh, generally their process, just a quick history lesson about sign stealing. 
Um, sign stealing is fundamentally a part of baseball, not in the sense that it's celebrated and it's it's uh, condoned and trained at the same level of, I don't know, throwing a curveball. Um, but uh, 2017, you have the, the Apple Watch uh, fiasco with the Red Sox uh, getting caught using an Apple Watch to steal signs, followed by the Yankees um, getting caught for the exact same thing. Uh, in the 1980s, the Chicago White Sox had a small bulb, a refrigerator bulb, uh, on their hometown scoreboard that um, someone from the, the scouting department was just toggling on and off based off of the signs that would tell the hitter at, uh, at the plate what the pitcher is about to throw. Um, not too dissimilar from what we're about to hear at the Astros. Uh, in the 1960s, two, um, two Atlanta Braves pitchers, Bob Buell and Joey Jay, uh, both alliterative names for some reason. Uh, they had just thrown a, a, a doubleheader, those two guys had. And then in the, the next game at Wrigley Field against the Cubs, they were in center field wearing disguises, uh, where, using binoculars to steal signs. Uh, and then 1951, Bobby Thompson shot her around the world with the San Francisco Giants against the New York Yankees. Uh, that team, the Giants, uh, were found, and, and most of the guys on that team admitted to it much later, uh, that they were using a telescope from center field to relay a buzzer to the dugout uh, to relay a sign to um, to the guys at, at home plate um, for what pitch is about to come. So this is 60, 70 years here of sign stealing. You know what the difference is, though, with all those things in this one? Absolutely, I know what the difference is. But I'm, I'm just saying that sign stealing as a as a, as a a tactic is, is not new to baseball. What is new is what the Astros were doing, which is where you come in right now. Uh, well... Besides what they were actually doing, the other thing that was different is they didn't have, I don't know how much this, I'm almost even hesitant to say it, but I don't know how much this played into the fact the Astros getting punished, but there wasn't really a big social media presence around, well, there wasn't any social media at all for a lot of these things, and for the 2017 Red Sox, there really wasn't this big social media uproar that put pressure on very true. The, the, the baseball, the Major League Baseball front office uh, to come down hard on the Astros. You saw all these videos of the banging and, you know, you had people going pouring over thousands of hours of footage trying to isolate the bangs, you know, against the pitchers and all that stuff. And as we've gotten more intricate and more advanced in our understanding of baseball and how it works, I think that has played into a lot of this because people can start to understand how much of an advantage sign stealing really creates. What the Astros were doing is uh, taking a small camera from their center field um, camera well and relaying that footage in real time, not on delay like most you know mm -hmm. broadcasts are. They were doing it in real time to their uh, dugout, and then the dugout would figure out what the signs were, whether, you know, one, if it was just standard one fastball, two changeup, three curveball, stuff like that, or if they had a little bit more intricate of a set of signs, and they would decode and break, um, I guess they would break the code on those signs, and then they would bang. And, and so this whole thing is very weird because in, in one respect, they're using this highly advanced technology. <laughs> the Astros yes. are on like the forefront of like analytical, cutting-edge research. And then on the other hand, they're banging a trash can to signify <laughs> what pitch is coming. So there's just two total opposite ends of the spectrum of what's going on in this in this whole scandal. And it really is a scandal at this point because it it's been about two months since the since the initial um, 
well, it's been longer than that. It's been like four months since the athletic article broke and the Mike Fires whistleblowing thing and all of that. But it's been about two months or so since, you know, MLB came out and investigated and all of that. But there's still new articles coming up every day, one from the Wall Street Journal just yesterday, mm -hmm. detailing that this might not have just been a 2017 thing. This could have been something they were doing in both 2018 and 2019, but using buzzers. And there's all sorts of conspiracy theories going on now. And it's really not a good look for the game. Yeah, it's it's a it's a black mark, and we'll talk about uh, all the different or some of the different ways that it affects uh, baseball and the players involved in it. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right that it is hilarious that they're using um, you know these sophisticated cameras to relay a signal to ha hack into the or to work with this um, you know Excel based application to break a code, and then the output of that is is Jose Altuve slapping the bottom of a trash can. Uh, it's it's like using sonar to find fish, and then just using your hands to try and get the fish. Right. Uh, which... It's just it's like the it's it's very just weird all the way around. It's more than anything, more than angry or anything, I'm just very confused by the whole story, honestly. Yeah, because it seems like that it was very tongue-in-cheek almost that it was happening and that people knew that, that it was happening and, you know, just in the same way that people have known that sign stealing happens in much, much cruder ways all the time with guys at second base, you know, pointing to a certain knee uh, to, to indicate to the, to the hitter at home plate uh, what to expect. That sort of stuff is happening that, you know, that you saw the Logan Morrison Instagram post about um, Felix getting shelled in Houston and, and how, you know, that was, mm -hmm. a, a, they heard the banging, didn't really know what was going on. So I don't know. It just seems like if I, if I saw them banging on a trash can and then also we're, we were getting shelled uh, for inexplicable reasons that I would have put two and two together. And that the fact that people came down on Mike Fires for talking about this, it's like, Mike, the fact that nobody else did is almost a, like an even it's more... It's very, yeah, it's like very this weird good old boys club in baseball where millions and millions and millions of dollars are on the line. And, you know, have you ever seen uh, Bull Durham, the movie? Uh, no, actually. Okay, so there's this famous scene where... Uh, what's his name? Is it... No, it's not Harrison Ford, is it? What's, Kevin what's Costner? No. Kevin Costner, yeah, it is Kevin Costner. Thank you. Uh, he basically explains Babbitt. But this movie was in made in like the nineties. <laughs> yeah, this movie James, was made. Long Bill James before. was not a writer on Bill, the Bull Durham script. No, but he inadvertently explained Babbitt, and it's really funny to look back on because they didn't even realize what they were doing. But he said, "You know what the difference between a two fifty hitter and a three hundred hitter is over the course of the season?" And he says, "It's twenty six hits." That means 26 little flares or 26 times that the ball, you know, doesn't find the glove. And basically he's doing this whole thing to show this young kid who's coming up through the minor leagues how little of a difference it makes but or how little things can make this huge difference. 26 hits. That's it. Over the course of 162 games, you know, you miss one little hit there or you miss one little thing there or mm -hmm. you get an extra thing here and it can compound and make this make for your season to be entirely different than, you know, what it could have been. So for everyone saying, oh, well, it's not such a big deal. One extra hit is a big deal in baseball, especially when these teams are all on a pretty flat surface and the talent disparity between players is so small. Just that little extra edge can be a big difference. Yeah. And the, the most infuriating part, I think, with the Astros is that, you know, as recently as last year, you and I are talking about them um, for the just the amount of talent that they have on their roster. And that part is, in, right. in you know, inarguable. Um, and that talent has obviously been enhanced by knowing what pitch is coming um, at, at Tropicana Park. But um, 
or Minute Maid Park. Tropicana is the yeah. Tampa Bay one, but different, different orange juice. <laughs> yeah, for real. Um, but uh, can you believe that as recently as five years ago they had that hill in center field? That, I, it just seems like everyone would hurt themselves on that. <laughs> I remember watching like back in the day when the Astros were in the National League, guys like running up onto the hill and get the ball. It was so ridiculous. I kind of liked it though. Yeah, it, it's very baseball to have something like that, but also yeah. makes no sense. But anyways, we were talking about the Astros for their talent on their roster. How they've you know accrued. Uh, Springer and Korea and and Altuve and um, and Jordan Alvarez was the next next wave of the guys coming and they still had a strong farm system and can go get guys like Rinky because they have such a strong farm system. Uh, you know we're, we're lauding them for all of that that they had done, which is the same rules that anyone else could could do, and they were doing it very well. Uh, and then for them to continue and 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 go past that uh, and line step to to a to a cheating perspective or cheat, cheating level. Is is the shitty part, and the, yeah. the, the a team. It's like it's like hearing that the you know the the team that's already bigger and better in first grade baseball um, is is using like you know ju- court balls. Bats. You know, like, yeah. like yeah. what are you doing? You're you're already gonna beat our asses. Well, here's the thing. I remember me and you having this conversation on a podcast before, where you asked me how in the world are the Mariners ever gonna catch. The Astros. The right. Astros are already far better in the major leagues by it's night and day. And then they also have this farm system where it just seems like endless guys are coming through Jordan Alvarez and Forrest Whitley and Kyle Tucker and all that. And I didn't really have a good response, but I guess it's just the way the world <laughs> works where things change. Now you look at the Astros and you can see that window closing tight. Yep. And they maybe have one or two more years with these guys. And then they're going to have to start paying Bregman and Springer and Correa and all these guys. And they don't have Lunau anymore, and they don't have Hinch anymore, and now this whole weird uh, scandal is hanging over them. You, you could see a scenario where in three years the Astros are in the bottom of the division. They don't have a manager as of as of the, re- recording this podcast. Uh, uh, they got Dusty. Dusty oh, they Baker. got Dusty Baker, right? But yeah. they don't have. Oh, the Red Sox don't have a ma- manager. That's right. Red Sox don't have a manager. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah so Dusty Baker, welcome, welcome to the AL well. West. The Astros still don't have a GM as of right now. Yeah. But that's that's a Houston thing. Uh, the the Texans also don't have a GM. Ah, oh, there you uh, go. Which is which is interesting. Uh, last question here on the Astros: How can the MLB stop this from happening? Other than than just using the power of their example uh, that they set for the Astros and saying you don't want that to have ha- to you don't want to have that happen to you. I think the easiest way is more oversight in both the dugout and the thing I always think about with this is. The Astros have been celebrated because of this whole cutthroat approach where, you know, all they care about is finding the littlest bit of surplus value and then exploiting the hell out of that. And that's the same reason you saw them take on Roberto Ozuna, you know, the guy who has a bunch Mm -hmm. of domestic violence issues because they knew they could get him for cheaper than what his true value was because he has these other things. You see them having a guy like Brandon Taubman in their front office who has his own hangups with women, as we've seen, um, you know, celebrating and gloating to women, female reporters about, and I don't want to get too deep into that, but gloating to female reporters about how he's so happy. They have this guy who beats his wife on their team and they tolerated that because, you know, surplus value, he's great. He can get us these guys and blah, blah, blah. And it just, you kind of lose, And I guess this is kind of what happens to any big company. You lose the fact that these are human beings that we're managing and 
we have a specific set of rules that we have to adhere to. You look at like Enron, for instance. I mean, the same thing happens to them. When you get so deep into caring so much about your performance and their performance takes precedent over every other human issue, there really is no stopping it. So I don't know if it was just a cultural thing with the, with baseball that needs to change. But for me, I don't really feel like there is an easy solution because when so many millions of dollars are on the line, every team is going to look for every little way. And some of those teams are going to cross the line and, and do things that are not exactly legal. Yeah. And I think if, if, if there's a way to uh, celebrate Mike fires a little bit more um, for someone who, who spoke up and in, in obviously, as we talked about the absence of, of others doing that, despite, uh, but despite what was being observed um, that that would be another good way to do it. That the positive praise of, of keeping this game pure um, you know, baseball has enough problems with, with viewer right. retention. I mean, some could argue this will attract more eyes to baseball, but, uh, um, yeah, I mean, you could easily argue that this is going to be a net positive for the game. Yeah. But, uh, but you know, same if, way steroids were, but again, I don't know if you really want to look at it that way. Yeah. That, you know, you just need positive actors or, or good actors to, to be celebrated for, for them and not being called rats mm. and snitches and, and things like that, which, you know, it's just, it's just absurd that um, yeah. 29, well, <laughs> at least the majority of the league, I would imagine, are playing playing one sport. I think it was funny in the in the Wall Street Journal article, they, they, they were mentioning um, the reports going back from from uh, to Jeff Lunau, the, the then Astros GM, um, and, and some of the staff who were familiar with the, the banging scheme, as it were. Uh, they're talking about how the banging scheme. I love that name. Like, what a name for a scandal! It's better than Watergate. Some teams were responding to to the the dark arts mid game and switching up their signs, and then they would just find him again. Um, but but then they're like teams like the Toronto Blue Jays seem and Oakland A's seem not to care because they were so bad and just just like let it happen to them essentially. See, that's just like that's so bad because that's basically honestly that coming out was more damning to the MLB than like maybe the whole sign stealing scandal because that is just admission as clear as you can make admission that they were aware and they just didn't care that tell me how that doesn't yeah. mean, mean that they are tanking on exactly. purpose exactly exactly how does that mean they're not tanking on purpose if they literally know that they're getting their signs stolen and they don't even care enough to change the signs mm-hmm. Yep, or or caring enough to figure out that it's being done at the at, in the way um, that that it was being done, you know, because obviously yeah. we talked about Stein. This Stein. whole thing is just not a good look for baseball. It's it's fascinating. I will say that that it's it's attracted interest to the game um, in in ways that it hasn't in a long time, probably since the steroid era, um, but uh, but not the attention that you ultimately want um, over a sustained period of time. Uh, let's right. let's step back for a second. We intentionally uh, kind of brushed over Kyle Lewis in our outfield preview. Quickly, um, first of all, preview the fact that you am I, I'm, I'm correct here that you are now a a staff writer for Baseball Prospectus, Prospect Insider. That's I, but I'm, I'm not what I said, quite Phil. there yet. My first article. <laughs> I, so I sent my article. I, re- I sent my. I realized that that the mistake here almost gave you an immense more amount of prestige. Than- I was about to say, baseball <laughs> perspectives is like an un. I, if I could ever write there, let's, that would be- let's run with that. Yeah. Okay. We can tell people that. Yeah. But anyway, the guy who runs uh, Prospect Insider, super nice guy. I've been emailing with him over the course of the last month or two, and I've been putting articles. I've been sending articles into his queue, and I think he's making a little log of them so we can release them. You know 
have a little backlog so we can release them. But he loves the articles that I'm doing, I think. I mean, that's what he says, at least. But um, the first article I wrote for him, and the one I think that probably landed me the position, was an article on Kyle Lewis. So I think of anybody on the team, I'm most qualified to talk about him. Hit it. So... Kyle Lewis, when he came up, what was your first reaction over the first 20 games or so that he played? This large young man can hit. Right. And he can. And he can hit for power. But there's a lot of concern in his profile. And I don't want to say he's doomed, but the path that Kyle Lewis has to walk to be a valuable major league player is a super, super narrow path. It's a guy who his profile is a guy who strikes out a lot, doesn't walk a ton, and can hit the ball really hard. Mm-hmm. That's a profile of basically Domingo Santana, if things go right. Domingo Santana struck out more than anybody in the league, um, but he also walked a fair amount, and he hit the ball really, really hard. Kyle Lewis doesn't even walk as much as Domingo Santana. The only thing Kyle Lewis has in his profile that is far superior to Santana is he's not a black hole defensively, which granted, I mean, Domingo Santana, if he was even an average defender in the outfield would have been worth two or three wins last year. But I think the cap, unless Kyle Lewis can get his strikeouts under control and some of that swing and miss under control, which he does a lot of is probably a three, three and a half win player, which is not bad, not bad at all. But there's a significant as far as guys who I feel have a very low floor, Kyle Lewis, I think could be out of the MLB in three years if things don't break his way. So, so I, I think there's a lot to be concerned about. There's obviously a lot to be happy about too. I'll give you the the Jerry Depoto at least spin. Um, I, I certainly trust your your research and, and your insight into this. Um, but the Jerry Depoto spin on Kyle Lewis is the strikeout rate is a product of his pitch select or his his pitch selection and the way he hits so he's swinging at good pitches um but because of how he gets his power and him taking pitches deep into the zone trying to hit opposite field power uh that is going to lead to a lot of misses um so his his general ability to read the strike zone and and make decisions off of that uh borne out over a whole season uh, will lead to better results than where than we saw at least in the strikeout to to walk ratio aspect of things uh, that we saw last season. How does that sound? You know, I hope that, but Jerry's so optimistic about everyone, and I guess you have to be. He's never going to say, "Yeah, the strikeout numbers are concerning," but they are concerning. You just have to put the ball in play more than he does, and if you don't put the ball in play more than he does, you have to hit the ball at like the ninety fifth or higher percentile in terms of how hard you hit it to get, you know, uh, a reasonable average. Um, because because of what he was saying in terms of getting the ball deeper and all of that, I'm, I'm not sure. I don't know. I'm not a scout. I'm not a swing expert. But all I know is he chased a lot in his time up in the majors, his first go-around. And that could just be a product of seeing major league breaking balls for the first time and not really understanding how to react to them. So we're going to really have to hone in on these 500 at-bats, I think, for Kyle Lewis are going to tell us everything we need to know about who he is. And I think even DePoto has said something in the past about how he likes to give guys about a year before he understands who they are as a player. I think this year for Kyle Lewis is pretty much a make or break. 
There we go. Yeah, that's uh, that's certainly interesting for a guy who, at one point, you know, you're looking at him last year as um, the the only reason to come to the ballpark um, towards the end right. of last season. And don't um, get me wrong, the power is tantalizing. He has great uh, bat. Once the bat hits the ball, he has it jumps. But he needs to get the strikeouts under control. At least not. He doesn't even need to be sub twenty percent. He needs to be sub twenty five percent. Let's uh, let's leave it there with Cal Lewis and talk briefly going around the league, talking about the uh, the, the biggest news of baseball uh, that uh, Mookie Betts has been traded from from Boston to the LA Dodgers um, for a return that has has I admit has gotten better uh, since the original trade. Now coming back as Alex Verdugo from the from the Dodgers as well as Jeter Downs. Uh, yes, there are players young enough to be named after Derek Jeter, which is yeah, just sick and <laughs> sickening. Um, I can't wait for for a guy named Trout Johnson to to be tearing up <laughs> baseball in twenty years. Uh, but um, but yeah, Mookie Betts is is going to the Dodgers. I can tell you from having my boots on the ground. Here, I was about it, to say you're in the epicenter there. Tell me what it's like. Ground Zero is tough. Um, there are no signs of life. There's just roving packs of dudes named Sully um, eating the raw flesh off of, of, <laughs> of pigeons that they're finding. Uh, no, it's it's really bad. I, I cannot remember in sports a trade with a lower approval rating um, from basically everybody except for one team than this one. Uh, there's been much written about this this trade already and much said um, in the justification department and the, the YOY department. All I can say is that uh, you get a guy like Mookie Betts and it's it, – you're done. You, you've, you've done what you were supposed you to do. It. And you can't, you can't find another Mookie Betts. Like you cannot pretend like that's a realistic outcome to find a guy like that. Yeah, you don't um, find that anywhere. Yeah, especially because we're just talking. I mean, that that, that edict is a, is talking about the statistical profile of a player. Everything else about Mookie Betts is awesome. Dude is a a absolute class act, um, beloved by the community. Basically, every kid in Boston's favorite player. Um, absolutely no problems um, in terms of, of personality. Now they have got a guy in Alex Verdugo who is, you know, apparently a huge asshole, which is just a great trade. Yeah, um, he's had. Yeah, he's definitely had some character concerns. I know that. Yeah, and so so Mookie Betts. I mean, and and you know, for I'm glad he's a part of baseball. I'm glad he's one of the best players in baseball. Baseball obviously has um, a, 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 a severe lack of uh, young black talent to attract. And that's the thing that's frustrating about baseball is like, they should be marketing the hell out of Mookie Betts. Like the way they did back in the day with Ken Griffey. Do they just forget? Did they just forget how to do that? I don't understand. Ken Griffey was everywhere. You had Ken Griffey junior baseball. You had Ken Griffey. Maybe it's because I'm, we're from Seattle and we saw it more, but I'm pretty sure that was a nationwide thing too. Yeah. Mookie, Mookie Betts, his name is Mookie. Like how, (laughs) how hard is it to mark? Exactly. He's just an adorable, uh, fantastic player. But um, here, I'll say this. Um, we just got done with the Astros sign ceiling scandal talking about how teams are looking for any little bit of surplus value that they can find. And with Mookie Betts' contract coming up, he was going to get paid in the range of 12 years and $400 million. There's not a lot of surplus value, no matter how good you are. There's not a lot of surplus value in that contract. And that's the sad thing, is that baseball teams have gotten almost, I think, too smart with how they spend money. Uh, they just don't do that anymore because they they want so much more financial flexibility and they think, well, we can 
with $400 million, we don't need one Mookie Betts because we can make, you know, seven guys that are just as that can basically equal Mookie. But, you know, they can amalgamate things and make extra yeah. value. And it does suck. It, I'm not saying it doesn't suck. I can understand the rationale from a hardcore analytical perspective, but it doesn't ease the why does this have to be the way it is perspective. Yeah, I mean, one one thing to put to bed for sure is this idea of like, oh, you know, he's still a free agent next year, and there's a possibility that you'd sign him. That is not happening. You you, you traded him yeah. away. That, that that trades away your uh your ability to to keep him. The only way, the only way this is justifiable is if that there's some conversation that we're not privy to where Mookie Betts told uh told the the Red Sox specifically, um, I'm you know, not resigning. Maybe in the wake of sign stealing with Alex Cora. I don't want to be here, or maybe you know some something like that happened with it with his agency. Unless that happened, this is indefensible, and that's, that's yeah. That, just... I mean, you're right. There's the only way I could see it being something to do is if he told them flat out, "There's no amount of money in the world that you are going to resign me for because I'm not coming back." Then you need to do that. You just do because you need to get some. You need to recoup some value from him. Yeah, but um, the pro- the problem though is that usually happens to to small market teams who end up with players that um, realize that you know they want to be in in brighter pastures. You were in Boston. You you this is the third most valuable uh, franchise in sports. It's the third most um, I think lucrative ownership group in in not yeah. in sports in baseball I should say. Um, yeah. and and you know. No, from a from a you're from a luxury tax getting under the threshold type of perspective, it's bullshit. Yeah. But from a hardcore like if I was to be operating this team like I was the Tampa Rays, yeah, it's probably a good move. I that's as much as I can defend it. Like yeah. if you weren't the Boston Red Sox and you were the Minnesota Twins or you were the San Diego Padres, well, not even the Padres. If you you know, if you were one of those teams who actually has financial restraints, Maybe I can see why you do this, but with the Red Sox, it is it's it's sort of indefensible. Yeah, and I think maybe you're looking at the Orioles and saying, would they have let? Well, I mean, they did. They got they got value out of Machado yeah, before. They he, got before the he same left. thing yeah. with Machado. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. We're we're both in agreement there, but um, I just wanted to give the give the report here of just how how pissed off everyone is. Um, you know, the Verdugo um, when it was Verdugo and a broken Gratterall as the only things coming back. Um, it was it was especially bleak, but yeah. down down somewhat sweet. Package back. They got yeah. more than fair value. But getting a guy named Jeter to succeed in in Boston is also going to be tough. Yeah, um, I I didn't even think about that, but yes, you're right. Yeah, the, not quite as cute or has uh, has much of a cachet. Well, stay uh, safe out there. I know the bars <laughs> don't. Uh, what is it? There's some law in Boston about drinking now. Oh well, I mean, you told me about there's this. There's lots of these. Yeah, no happy hour, no double shots, no. Drunk oh no, shots. happy hour. That's yeah. what it was. No happy hour. That's what it was. Not a lot of happy hours uh, in this. No, Red Sox no season. happy hour at all in exactly. Boston right now. Um, let's name our fantasy team. Uh, you okay. and I are co-owners now of a uh, 14-team keeper league. Um, who's who's in this league? This is. Uh, Do I know anyone? Yeah, my other podcast partner for the the Husky Pods, Michael Stanton, is the is the oh, commissioner cool. um, with a bunch of I think his his work friends. Um, so we are we are replacing one of the types of guys who uh, would pay every year and then not set his lineup. So if we can right. be, beat that, then we are uh, providing value to this league. Good. Um, I have a few. Uh, one of the ones you sent over uh, before the pod um, was was uh, really nice as well. Uh, what's what's your official? 
submission for our fantasy team. I'm going with Warlords. I like Warlords. It's a good play on the term. There's a movie with Nicolas Cage, who's my favorite actor, called War of the War. <laughs> yeah. I just... That one to me is my favorite, but I'm, I need to hear yours. I like the banging scheme. I just think that the we're banging not, scheme was good. Yeah, but not, I like warlords. We're not going to be alone. I think in the banging scheme. I think some teams are. A lot of people are going to make fun of the Astros and their their team name this year. Um, mine that I, I really like. I have, I have two. One is an homage to the the bleakest days of of Seattle Mariners history. Uh, the 2010 Seattle Mariners, the Mike Sweeney Seattle Mariners. Oh uh, hell yeah! The name is Stand Up and Fight Me. Um, which is oh, is that from the Griffey <laughs> falling asleep in the dugout? Yes. Uh, okay, I like that one. That should be our name. That up, one's perfect. Stand up and fight me is what Mike Sweeney told reporters that he told he told uh, everyone in the roster, everyone in the clubhouse. Um, basically, if if you want to accuse Ken Griffey Jr. of falling asleep in the dugout, um, as he was reported to have done, uh, to stand up and fight him. <laughs> So Did they ever figure out who was the who was the leaker on that? No, nah, it was like two anonymous players. I think told oh. told some some Seattle Times reporter or something like that. Um, so Sweeney was trying to find a rat and and was unsuccessful for no surprise because he was about to fight anyone who. who I liked Mike Sweeney. He was a good player back yeah. in the day with the Royals, not with the Mariners, but with the Royals, he was a good player. Mike Sweeney would have beat Mike Fire's ass. That's that's for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. My other one is uh, is a little little cuter, but I like it. Uh, the Fraley Odd Parents. I like that one too. So I like both of those. <laughs> so we have Warlords, Banging Scheme, Fraley Odd Parents, or Stand Up and Fight Me. Tell the listeners to vote. Okay. Yeah, we'll put that out as a poll. I like that. Yeah. Um, for, you know, the, my dad doesn't have Twitter, so it's going to be hard to get engagement. On, yeah, on that that's side. true. Um, but, you know, tap into your baseball prospectus pool there and we'll see what we can get. Yeah, now that I'm a, a published author on Baseball Perspectives, I want to clarify that the website I write for is BaseballPerspectives.com. Yes, yes. <laughs> and your name is uh, William, a.k.a. Bill James. Yeah. <laughs> Phil James. Phil James. Uh, there you go. Um, let's hit in our first fedora and hydro of the year. Uh, my fedora is to Q13's own Aaron Levine. Who I just, saw that, yeah. <laughs> who just can't figure out um, what a rebuild means. And he got all up in a hissy fit this this um, after the aforementioned pre-spring luncheon about uh, Jerry DePoto's timeline and inconsistency with when basically the Mariners are going to be good um, after Jerry DePoto gave all indication that uh, it was not going to be this year. Uh, Aaron Levine put together a little iMovie, <laughs> like weird mashup of this year's press conference and last year's press conference um, to say like, basically try and pin Jerry. Yeah, try, as, try and like get him to contradict himself. It's like you yeah. said we were going to suck yeah. until, and it's like, dude, <laughs> even just you're in, you're in semantics world. And yeah, it was totally a semantics argument, which is just stupid. And I think it's, it's kind of a sign of the times that all of his like feedback on Twitter was like, dude, everyone knows they're going to suck. And we're actually all okay with this because yeah, I mean, that's, that's honestly as much of a ringing endorsement for the rebuild as you could possibly imagine. Yeah. Yeah. That like, there, there are people who they're fine with it because we've seen every other iteration of of uh, unintentional sucking and expensive sucking. Yeah, it's it's finally like, hey, like, let's do this for a purpose if we're going to suck. Exactly. So Aaron Levine, you got all worked up uh, for no reason. And uh, we're actually all cool with what's going on. Who's, who's your fedora? Uh, my fedora is going to Justin Verlander. Ooh. Do you know why? Hmm. 
Is it Kate Upton related? No, I wish. I wish he had broken up with her. <laughs> but um, it's actually Verlander has always sort of uh, made himself out to be this sort of moral arbiter of the ga- of the game of baseball, mm. where you know anytime somebody would get busted for steroids, when Robinson Cano got busted, he would tweet out, "Oh, here comes the excuse!" in three, two, one. Or like when somebody else would get, you know, in trouble for whatever, Verlander would always say, this isn't right. You can't do this. You can't do that. So my question is, Justin, where were you for the last three years when you knew your team was breaking the rules? Where was your moral code then? It's very easy to blame other people, but where are you to say we can't be doing this? It's just his everything about him rings so hollow and cheap now. That is very interesting. And also given the fact that I've, believe it was Bauer um, who was frequently pointing out the Astros uh, like spin be- rates. before and after spin rates of guys yeah. who came there to pitch, um, looking at Verlander specifically from his Tiger stint uh, to immediately when he took over with the, the Astros, I guess that was in 2017, um, as the prime example. So yes, they got caught in uh, in the banging scheme, but is the, do we have any reason to believe that there wasn't some other thing um, that they were doing on the pitching side of things to also gain an edge that was totally. slightly shady. And I would not be surprised at this point. Everything with that team is suspect now. Exactly, exactly. So, yeah, glass houses for sure uh, to to Verlander. And also, I haven't read it, but Astro Ball is just way funnier now as a book. Yeah, um, you yeah. Know, them, I have not read Astro Ball either, but now I kind of want to. <laughs> them, them touting their own abilities to yeah. uh, succeed as a franchise when there was uh, you know institutional cheating also going on in that. Yeah. Um, my hydro this week is to a story, um, or to a, the hero of a story, Mike Bolsinger, uh, also, also Astros related. Do you know this one? Uh, is this the guy that's suing them? Correct. Yes. Okay. Mike Bolsinger, um, is suing the Astros basically claiming that they ended his career because as a, uh, Dodgers and Blue Jays pitcher, um, pitching against them essentially, uh, caused him to be out of the league. And I think that there's a lot of guys um, like the Re- the Mariners' own Reggie McLean, you uh, Darvish, who either their careers were altered or tarnished, or uh, their earnings were severely affected because of performances against the Astros. Um, and in you Darvish's case, really just a couple of innings against against the Astros um, mm-hmm. that s- severely changed the trajectory of obviously their career earnings and therefore uh, their family's lifetime wealth. Uh, because those guys had to uh, had to get the banging in, and I think that you think that you think that's going to go anywhere in court. I doubt it. Absolutely not. But I think yeah. that this this type of of thinking is is helpful to, for people under, to understand that um, you know this was this was banging. This wasn't even really working necessarily. Like you can't even really prove cause and effect um, to a, to a certain degree. But uh, the the idea here is that this impacted people's lives. You know, this impacted the uh, LA Dodgers, I don't know, grounds crew guy who has been there his whole life and maybe retired um, after after the the World Series that they didn't win. You know that that type that type of thing is is you know this the way that you need to think about um, cheating and how it affects. It has it has externalities that reach farther than you would even imagine. Exactly. All right. Well, let me uh, end with the fedora. That's also going to go on a positive note. Also with the Astro sign stealing. But let's let's uh, let's talk about Dusty Baker for a second. He's been in baseball for so long, and he's always just been a really good person. 
done things really honestly and in a good way. And he hasn't been granted the best manager at all the time. Uh, you know, he's not very analytically inclined. He's not great with, you know, sort of understanding those little intricacies about spin rate and stuff like that. But there's probably nobody better as a representation of like the game of baseball that right now that we need to kind of uh, calm things down than Dusty. And he's stepping into a hornet's nest. Everyone's going to be booing them every single game they're on the road. And he is a really good guy to put a face to the recovery of kind of the sanctity of the game. Yeah, and the sanctity of, of that franchise for sure. Just yeah. a, a hard guy to hate um, in, in Dusty Baker now as, as the, uh, the the manager there. Um, funny enough, I was thinking about Dusty Baker because I saw a tweet the other day. Darren Baker, who if you'll remember in the, I think it was in the World Series, how Darren Baker was the, the bat boy for the, the Giants. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who yeah. was about to get smacked at home plate until yeah. JT Snow picked him up. Mm-hmm. Uh, Darren Baker is now a junior at for the California Golden Bears baseball team. So oh we have players named Jeter, and uh, Dusty Baker's infant child is now a college kid. Um, so uh, that's not that doesn't feel good either. We are ancient, Phil. Yikes! Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't help my like existential dread when I see like guys that are born in the year two thousand now being drafted all the time with regularity. Yes, yes, um, and that we call them kids and refer to them as young. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but here we are, uh, just two old men talking, 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 uh, talking rawhide here. Uh, all right, man, this was good. We are we are underway for for this season. We will. Uh, I don't know if we'll do it next week. Um, Probably every other week until the season gets up. That sounds about right. Uh, but uh, but this felt good. Felt right. We're uh, we're. Back you know what saddle. happens two weeks from today? Um, first live telecast of Mariners spring training. Oh my god. Yeah. Oh, my my other my other hydro before we go. Any uh, J- Jared Kellenick, Julio Rodriguez buddy stories? They yeah, get the bromance. Oh God, they they melt my heart. Um, yeah, I know. Me too. Yeah, the fact that those guys get along and both seem like good good fellas. And they is... want the Mariners to win. You know? Yes, that's they care yeah. about the team. Like you said, Kikuchi said, they need me the most. <laughs> yeah. There we go. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully they're better though. Yeah. Uh, All right, right. Phil, thanks for hopping on, and we'll do this again soon. All right, I'll see you in a couple weeks. Take care.